Amen. Thank you, ladies. Take your Bibles out and turn with me this morning as we return to our series on the book of Revelation, looking this morning at chapter 19, Victory in Jesus. Now, folks, I told you we were going to start getting some good news before long, did I not? Uh, You know, Jesus said, he who endures to the end shall be saved, right? Well, we're going to look at some good news this morning. So find chapter 19 in your copy of the scripture. And while you find your place in God's word, I, I do want to ask you to be in prayer for several things. First of all, we've got a bunch of people in the church leaving first thing in the morning, children and youth and uh, youth leaders and children's leaders as this is the week of one of the weeks of their camps and so this week in your prayer time and devotion time if you would put uh, those groups on your prayer list you know every year at the time of these camps we see uh, God doing wonderful things in the lives of our kids and youth as they come back and uh, just as they've just, just sung about, the gospel changes everything. Lives come back changed. And so remember those who will be gone uh, to the camps this week. Uh, also, I want to let you know that uh, next Sunday night, the church will be celebrating together the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. So uh, be making preparations for that next Sunday night. And then uh, again, we want to thank those who helped us out in VBS a couple of weeks ago. And uh, we want to carry VBS to the community. I know Kevin mentioned about volunteers. Uh, That is a local mission project. The community has responded very well. Uh, Or they did last year, our first year of doing that. Very good response on the community, those communities that we went to with uh, Backyard Bible Clubs, and uh, we want to do that again this year. Just a great opportunity to get outside of the walls of the church and get out in our community and uh, share the love of Christ. So uh, you sign up and be a part of that. I want to ask you if you would stand for the reading of God's Word now. We'll begin reading in verse 1, and we will read chapter 19 uh, in its entirety. A victory in Jesus. John says, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in the heaven crying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who is seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, You who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. 
Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one seated on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men. The flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who were seated on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Lord, as we turn our attention now to this wonderful chapter in the Word of God, I pray that you would open our eyes and minds and hearts that we would receive your truth because your word is truth. And God, we thank you today for that promise that we have in the word of God that there is victory in Jesus. Jesus is coming again for his bride. He's coming again to this earth to set up his kingdom. And he shares his victory with his children. We are heirs, heirs together with Christ. And Father, I pray that you would plant that hope firmly in our hearts that no matter what we go through or endure on this earth, whatever trials we face, that there is coming that day when there is no more sorrow. There's only going to be rejoicing in your presence. 
And Lord, may that motivate us even today to live our lives yielded to the Lord Jesus and to be sharing the gospel that others may be there with us. Lord, give us a a heart not only for living for you, but a heart for the lost that we may warn them while it is yet time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chuck Swindoll writes, and I quote, he says, Imagine if George Lucas would have ended his classic Star Wars trilogy with the second film, The Empire Strikes Back. He says, remember that one? The credits rolled with Hans Solo frozen in a metal coffin en route to Jabba the Hutt. The impetuous Luke Skywalker aborted his Jedi training to rescue his friends as his diminutive teacher Yoda shook his head in disappointment. And Darth Vader's shocking claims of paternity nagged filmgoers with feelings of disgust. To the relief of millions of fans who lined up for days outside theaters to watch the ultimate defeat of the Galactic Empire, George Lucas capped off his space saga with the return of the Jedi. Even those who wouldn't consider themselves Star Wars fans paid good money to see that final installment. Why? Swindoll writes... Because nobody likes loose ends. Nobody likes loose ends. The previous section of Revelation left a number of loose ends begging to be tied up. Take heart, my friend. The time has come for the master storyteller to finish the script of his end time drama. End of quote. What a wonderful chapter this is. It is a bridge between the events of chapters 18 and 20. You'll recall in chapter 18 we saw the fall of Babylon, the collapse of this world's anti-God system. Chapter 18 closed out with the judgments, the end of the judgments of the great tribulation that began all the way back in Revelation chapter 6. And then in Revelation chapter 20, we're going to see the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. But between those events, we see what is going to happen to prepare us For chapter 20. In chapter 19 we see a celebration going on in heaven. We see the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we see the return of the Lamb with his bride to establish the millennial reign. The long awaited return of Christ is about to begin. And he is about to receive the worship that he has always deserved. And so the mood in this chapter changes drastically. The fall of Babylon signifies to the occupants of heaven that it is time for the celebration to begin. 
Now folks, what we learn in this chapter is that regardless of what is happening on this earth at any given time, the victory ultimately belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and His saints. Amen? We need to keep that in mind. Just as I said in my prayer, whatever we might be going through on this earth, whatever trial and tribulation we might be enduring, whatever hardships we go through, whatever opposition we face for naming the name of Jesus Christ, we need to always keep in our minds that Jesus Christ wins and the Bible says that you and I are going to be Join heirs with Christ. Now what I want you to see first of all this morning is a celebration in heaven. And that's what we read about in the first six verses. John says, after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. You know, it's long been held that Handel's course, uh, the the Hallelujah course, kind of sets the benchmark for all music. But I want to tell you, Handel's Messiah pales in comparison to what we see going on here in chapter 19. We see praise and gratitude and thanksgiving going on here in chapter 19 perhaps like none other that we see anywhere else in the Bible. And there are many reasons why the scripture says that we need to praise God. For example, we need to praise God because of His attributes. He's holy and righteous and just. He's omniscient and omnipotent. He's all-knowing. He's our creator God. All we need to do is think back to Genesis chapter 1 when he spoke in these world, this world and, and the heavens were created. He's our sustainer. Paul writes in Colossians 1.15 that it is through Christ that all things exist and that all things hold together. We need to praise God because of all of his activity in behalf of his saints. David in Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, all my soul, and forget none of his benefits. And he goes on in that psalm to enumerate all the reasons why he's praising God. And one of those reasons is because he has not treated us as our sins deserve. And hallelujah for that. He remembers that we are but dust. And and David in that psalm says, as a father, he takes pity on his children. We need to be very grateful for that. But again, so many reasons we have in the Word of God to uh, to be full of gratitude and have hearts full of praise. Paul in the New Testament says he praises God for God's indescribable gift. And what is that indescribable gift? It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul says we can be thankful, we can praise God because as believers he has delivered us from indwelling sin. He talks about that in Romans 7 and 8. As believers we've been delivered from the penalty of sin. In the Christian walk we can be delivered from the power of sin and one day in heaven, hallelujah, we're going to be delivered from the presence of sin. And then we can praise God according to 1 Corinthians 15 for the believer's victory over the grave. The grave does not have the last say in the believer's life. So many reasons in the word of God to be shouting hallelujah and to be praising God. Well, Right here as soon as the fall of Babylon is announced in heaven... Verse 1 tells us that there is this great multitude that John heard. And I want you to notice what they are singing or rather what they are crying out. They are crying out hallelujah. It's a word that is used a number of times in the Old Testament especially in the Psalms. But believe it or not this word is only used here in the New Testament. And it is a word that means that we are to ascribe worship and praise to God. Now folks, what is it that this heavenly multitude is shouting praise to God over? I want you to look at the end of verse 1 because I just want us to enumerate some of the things there of why John says this heavenly multitude was crying out. Notice the very first thing he talks about here is salvation. And so they are rejoicing over the saving work of God. Since Genesis chapter 3, God has been working to save his children. I think of how in Exodus chapter 15, after God rescued his children from uh, from Egypt... And, and he was carrying them through the wilderness and he delivered them there at the Red Sea. When they saw Pharaoh's army drowned and they were on the other side safe, what did they immediately begin to do? They began... To shout their hallelujahs and to praise God. They were praising God because of his salvation that he had given to them. His deliverance that he had given them. Folks, that is something that the people of God should never get over. If it were not for God initiating our deliverance, we would have no hope whatsoever. And so here is this multitude and they are shouting hallelujah. And I want you to remember who this multitude is. If we were to look all the way back once again to Revelation chapter 7, the Bible tells us it is people from every tribe and tongue and nation who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a great multitude over there and they are waiting on us. And most of us already have somebody over there on the other side that we're looking forward to seeing. You know, there used to be an old spiritual song in churches 
And, and it went something like this. The one section of the crowd would stand and sing, uh, I've got a mother over there. And all those who had a, have a godly mother who's over there waiting on them on the other side would stand and sing that chorus. And others in the crowd would say, and I've got a father over there. And those people would stand and sing and shout, and I've got a brother over there. And I've got a child over there. And they would all stand and shout and sing because of the salvation that their loved ones in Christ are enjoying today. They're part of that great multitude. Think about it, folks. They are singing praise to God over salvation. They understand how sweet salvation is. And they're there in the presence of God. No more fear. Think about it. They are, they are there with Noah and Abraham and Moses and Sarah and Ruth and so many others, they're there in the presence of the saints and, and they're singing hallelujah to God and, and they're praising God because of the deliverance of their soul that they've experienced. And not only that, but the second word he uses here is glory. They're rejoicing over God's glory. We know that glory belongs to God. And so finally in heaven, God is going to receive all the glory that is due his name. They're rejoicing over God's power. God has brought his judgment on the world. We've seen like in chapter 9 how the unbelievers continued to mock God. But in God's power, God has executed all of his purposes. And they're rejoicing over God's judgments which are true and righteous. Now some might think that's a bit insensitive, but I want to remind you that the lost at the time, uh, all the lost that have gone through the tribulation and have failed to come to faith in Christ, folks, they've been given every single opportunity to repent of their sins and come to faith in Jesus Christ, but they've not. They've witnessed all of these judgments, God pouring out His wrath on the earth. They've witnessed the, the testimony of the 144,000. They've witnessed the, the preaching of the two witnesses there in Revelation chapter 11. They've even witnessed those angels that God sends uh, to fly through the heavens and to preach the gospel. They've witnessed all of that and still they've not repented of their sins and come to faith in Christ. And so they're judged. Folks, I know that we don't like to talk about the judgment of God. But you know what? I am so thankful that God does judge evil and unbelief. Aren't you? Could you imagine a world or could you imagine a heaven where God never ever judged sin or evil? What if God was so soft on everybody that even the God-haters and those who persecute the church, what if they made it to heaven? What if there was sin and rebellion in heaven? Then it wouldn't be heaven, would it? Sometimes people don't like to think about the judgments of God, but it's necessary. They're also rejoicing, we're told here, because God has avenged His servants. 
Now the Bible tells us that we are not to take vengeance ourselves on our enemies. Romans 12 says we're to put vengeance into the hands of God and we can rest assured that one of these days God is going to avenge all the wrongs that have been done. And so John sees these hallelujahs. Continuing to go up in heaven for many reasons. The smoke of Babylon raises, rises forever. It's, it's a statement here that the ways of man will be judged forever. Never again will the ways of man seek to overcome God. And folks, think of this multitude who is there. Again, who are they? Well, there are those tribulation saints who have come to faith in Christ during the tribulation and they've been martyred. There are the saints who have gone on before and there are the, all the Old Testament saints. Because remember, in the Old Testament, people were saved the same way you and I are saved today. They were saved by faith. They weren't saved by the law. Abraham was uh, proclaimed as being righteous 400 years before the law was even given. He was saved by faith. He believed God and God credited unto him as righteousness. You see, they looked forward to that ultimate sacrifice that all of those lambs and goats pointed to. We look back to the cross. They looked forward to the cross. But everybody is saved the same way. We're saved by faith. And here's this multitude there, saved by faith, and they're praising God. There's a celebration going on. Unlike any celebration we see on the face of the earth. Second, I want you to notice with me this morning, a marriage in heaven. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. He says there, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now folks, here we see why there's such a great celebration going on in heaven. Because... There is a wedding. There's a wedding. Boy, we all love to go to weddings, don't we? And, uh, well, every year here we have a number of weddings that take place on the campus. One of these days I'm going to write a book about all my experiences at special events like weddings. Boy, funny things can happen at weddings. Funerals too. I told you about one of my first funerals. Uh, as soon as I got in the ministry, the, the graveside service was on this hill up in Rocky Mount, Virginia. And everybody was looking up towards the, the casket. And I'm standing there at the, at the head of the casket. And, and the funeral home director is directing everybody under the tent. And they move into those two rows of seats. And he seats them. And when their bottoms touch the seat bottoms, everything's A-OK so far. They all lean back in unison. And as soon as they do, those two rows of seats flip down the hill. <laughs> Boy, crazy things happen at weddings too. I've had grooms pass out on me. 
I've had some of you men say, amen, I felt like it. I've had wedding attendants pass out. I remember coming to a wedding here, Kevin Seeger did. He's up here on the platform and, and, he, and he took the rings and he was holding up the rings talking about them. All of a sudden he dropped them and those wedding rings took off <laughs> bouncing across this wooden floor up here. And he said, hang on a minute, I got to go get these things. <laughs> Crazy things take place at weddings. <laughs> John Doe on his wedding day was a most excited creature. He handed his wife the marriage fee and tried to kiss the preacher. <laughs> now folks, while weddings testify of earthly love stories, I, I tell you there's a greater love story taking place. And it's the marriage of Christ to his church. The marriage supper of the Lamb. What a great day that's going to be. I want you to remember the order of events. First of all, there's the rapture and then the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. Then there's the marriage supper. And then after the seven year tribulation, the second coming of Christ with the saints. But there in heaven, when we get there, after the judgment seat of Christ, there's going, there's going to be that marriage between uh, Christ, that marriage supper that signifies the, the consummation of the, of the wedding between Christ and his bride. I tell you what, you ought to study sometimes biblical marriages, what all took place. First of all, there'd be the engagement and the dowry paid uh, to, the, to the bride's dad. And then all the arrangements would begin. And when it came time for the marriage, the, the groom-to-be would have this big celebration going on at his house with his friends. And sometimes it would last for up to a week. And then there would be a big celebration of the bride and her friends. And then the, the, the groom and his friends would go through the streets, usually at night, with lit torches. And just before they got to the bride-to-be's house... They they would send a runner up ahead who would shout, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And all the, bride, all the bride's attendants and the bride would, would gather their torches and there would be a great procession through the streets back to the groom's house where there would be the wedding and then the great feast afterwards. I mean, everybody loves to celebrate and eat at a wedding, right? At that reception afterwards. What's the Bible say? says right now we are espoused to Christ. He's given us that engagement ring. What is that engagement ring? It's the Holy Spirit who is the seal, the promise of more to come. And that engagement with Christ begins the moment that we're saved. Paul talks about that day when there's going to be the ceremony and we're going to be presented to our, our groom as a, as a chaste virgin. And, and that's what John is talking about here in verse 7. And then the reception, the feast that follows the wedding is all ready and the bride has made herself ready. And later on in this chapter we're going to read about the honeymoon. Christ is going to come with this bride and we'll reign with him for a thousand years. 
I want you to notice what he says though in verse 8. Look at verse 8. It says, It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You see, folks, our life now matters. It's like we're making that wedding gown even now. It's the stewardship of our lives. How are we living right now? Remember that parable Jesus told in Matthew 25 about when he left and he put all he put his servants in charge of all of his estate and they were to be faithful and when he came back it was reckoning day it was accountability day and the guy that received 5 heard well done good and faithful servant he was a good steward and the one who received 2 he heard well done he was a good steward but the one who received only one gift didn't even do anything with what he got and he was called a wicked servant bad steward you see what verse 8 is saying here how we live our lives right now matters our salvation isn't going to be at stake if we're in Christ there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ but folks one of these days we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we're going to have to give an account and it is going to matter how Christians have served the Lord and lived their lives. We need to be getting ourselves ready. Even as a bride readies herself for that special day. Now folks, as we look on down to verses 11 and following, this is the climatic moment for which we've been building up to in the book of Revelation. We've been waiting for Jesus to return. Titus 2.13 says that even now we are looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. What is our hope is the world's fear. You see, when Christ returns before he establishes his rule, there's going to be a great battle. It's not the last battle. That comes in chapter 20. But this battle right here signifies the end to the tribulation. This is what we see in the latter half of chapter 19. We see the glorious return of Jesus Christ and the battle of Armageddon. Folks, let's think about how important the second coming of Jesus is. The second coming of Jesus Christ says a number of things to us. First of all, it says that there is justice coming to this world. There is judgment coming. And there is coming an end to all evil and suffering. That's what men cry out for today. They want an end of evil and suffering. And that day is eventually going to come. And there's going to be the reward of God's people. And God is finally going to take back that which is rightfully His. Amen? Well, after this marriage in heaven, I want you to notice with me, beginning in verse 11, a victorious Savior. 
A victorious Savior. John says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. John sees the heavens opened and I want you to remember he saw this back in chapter 4 as well where he was caught up to witness all the events and now he sees the heavens open this time for a whole different reason because he's allowed to see Jesus coming back in his ultimate victory. The rapture, I believe, has already occurred. The bride of Christ is with the Lord, but the Lord returns to the earth with His saints to take charge of that which is rightfully His. Folks, Jesus said this would happen. Remember what He said in Matthew 24, verses 29 and 31? The scripture there says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then, Jesus said, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other that's what John sees here he sees Jesus now look at, look at how he describes seeing Jesus Christ is seated on a white horse The white horse being a symbol of victory. Remember when kings would come riding on a donkey, it was a symbol of peace. He's coming in peace. There on that Palm Sunday, you know, they, were, they saw Christ riding in. They thought he was going to uh, go into Jerusalem, make war against the Romans. But he rode in on a donkey, which should have been a symbol to them. He was coming that first time to make peace. He was going there to die on a cross and make peace between men and God. But folks, he's coming again on a stallion. A stallion Kings would uh, ride a stallion when they were going into battle. And they would ride a white stallion after they had won the victory. But I want you to notice what's happening here. Christ is come. The battle's not even happened yet. But what kind of stallion is Christ coming on? He's coming on a white stallion. Signifying that the victory... It's certain. There's going to be no question about it. And so here Christ is coming to take back what is rightfully His. Folks, the day is coming when the drama of life as we know it is coming to an end. The curtains of time are going to be drawn back and out will step one on the center stage of the universe and that one will be the Lord Jesus Christ. And His coming the second time is going to be so different than His coming the first time. 
The first time he came as a suffering servant. The second time he's going to come as the supreme sovereign. The first time he was placed in a manger. But the second time he'll be proclaimed as the master. The first time his deity was denied by men. But the second time it will be declared by all men. The first time Jesus came to proclaim his kingdom. The second time he comes to claim his kingdom. You and I miss the first coming, but guess what? We'll witness the second coming. Because in Revelation 1-7, the Bible says, Behold, He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. And then look here in verse 11 and following how Christ is described. First of all, He's described. As being faithful. Everything the Father asked of him, he did perfectly. Remember what he said in John 17. He said, Father, what you gave me to do, I've done. He faithfully obeyed the Father. He's described here as the true one. Not one shed of falsehood is in him. His judgment is true and just. Christ said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. His words are true. We can count on it. When David Livingston, that great missionary, was about to set sail for Africa, deep, dark Africa, a land unknown to him, and at that time unknown to much of the world, somebody asked him, Uh, If he was afraid and David Livingston said absolutely not Because I have the promise of him who said Lo I will be with you always even to the end of the age David Livingston said that's the word of a gentleman that cannot be broken His words are true John goes on to describe him here in righteousness he judges and wages war No vindictiveness, no pettiness involved in his warfare. Remember those he is about to defeat, they're without excuse. They've had every opportunity. He's described as having eyes like a flame of fire. He sees clearly, he sees fully, he sees powerfully. He says here also on his head was a crown with many diadems. What kind of crowd did they crown did they put on him at the crucifixion a crown of thorns but here he has that crown filled with diadems he has a name that no one knows Christ is so great we can't fully explain him we'll spend all of eternity learning how wonderful our Savior is He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, signifying the defeat of his enemies. His name is called the Word of God. What does a word do? A word communicates. Remember John 1 that called him the Word because he came to explain the Father. He came to make him known. He's the captain of an army. And verse 14 says... That army is going to be the saints, the saints of all the ages. What an army that's going to be. And I want you to notice though that it's Christ alone who is armed. He's armed with his word. That's the only weapon that he needs. Remember, his word is powerful. 
He spoke and the worlds were created. He spoke to the Sea of Galilee when the disciples were certain they were going to die because of that storm. And the Bible says the wind and the waves settled down immediately. His word is powerful. And with his word he's going to smite the nations. That's what he does here. You realize we have a little preview of this happening in the Gospels. You remember what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane when they arrested Christ? Remember when they asked him to identify himself and he, and he said, yes, I'm he. What happened to all the guards? They, they fell back at his word. Just his word. At this time, he's going to smite the nations. Matthew 25 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a sheep separates the sheep from the goats and he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. In his first coming, he came to bear the wrath of God against sin This time, though, he's coming to display the wrath of God towards unbelievers. Verse 16, John says, And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Folks, you see what we're being told here? Who wins? Jesus wins. Those who are in Christ win. We don't have to live our lives in fear. We don't have to live our lives in fear of the future. We we know that on this earth, this earth is not our home. And we know bad things are going to happen on this earth. We're plainly told so. But folks, we have a home in heaven with the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's our destiny and we have nothing whatsoever to fear. John hears this call from heaven in verses 17 and 18. Eat to all the birds. The enemies of the Lord are going to be ultimately destroyed. And I want you to notice he's no respecter of persons. Regardless of their place or position in life, they'll be destroyed. These folks have lived according to the flesh and whatever their flesh desires. And now their flesh is going to be destroyed and that's why the Lord tells us we need to be laying up our treasures in heaven we see in verse 19 here the callousness of kings they're gathered to fight apparently they're gathered to fight either one another or a common enemy and they see Jesus coming and and they all turn their wrath against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords it's amazing how people actually believe they can overcome God the psalmist says in, in, in Psalm 2 that the Lord laughs he laughs at their plans And then we see the capturing of the Antichrist and the false prophet and they're cast into the lake of fire. Now folks, what a vivid reminder that we have here that we were not created for the lake of fire. The devil and his angels were 
the lake of fire was made for them. Man is made for fellowship with God. That's what we're intended for. Those who go to the lake of fire, those who end up in hell, do so because they reject the Savior. And they follow the evil one. But man was created for fellowship with God. And that's what we see here. And now as chapter 19 ends, we see the earth being made ready for the thousand year reign of Christ. He reclaims what is rightfully his and the saints get a taste of what the earth could have been like had sin never entered into the picture in Genesis 3. And you know in that day we're going to understand the high price that we've paid for sin. I like what Anne Graham Lott says in her book, A Vision of His Glory. Listen to the analogy that she gives of how the church is living now. And we're waiting on that day and one of these days the, eye, the, earth, uh, the, the sky is going to split and the Savior is going to come back for His bride. Listen to this analogy she gives. On June 2nd, 1995, while flying a mission for the United States Air Force in cooperation with the United Nations, Captain Scott O'Grady was shot down by a surface-to-air missile over Bosnian territory in Eastern Europe. When his plane exploded out from under him, he was able to safely eject. As he slowly parachuted down to earth, he did so with growing fear and dread as he saw people, including enemy soldiers, watching and waiting for him. He landed in a grassy clearing slightly away from the gathering crowd, quickly shed his parachute and dashed to hide in a small clump of bushes. There he plunged his face face into the dirt, covering his ears with his green-gloved hands so that no bare skin would attract the attention of any searchers. Within four minutes of his landing, the area was swarming with Serbs who were furiously looking for him. For the next six days, Captain O'Grady eluded his would-be captors by remaining frozen during the day with his face in the dirt, moving very cautiously only at night. Those searching for him with guns and bayonets often passed within three feet of where he lay hidden. Cows leisurely cropped grass around his legs while he lay prostrate beneath bushes. He survived by eating bugs, leaves, and grass and by drinking what little dew and rainwater he could collect. His days and nights were filled with the terror of possible capture by the enemy. Listen to his own testimony. I prayed to God and asked Him for a lot of things and He delivered throughout the entire time. When I prayed for rain, He gave me rain. One time I prayed, Lord, let me at least... Have someone know that I'm alive and maybe come to rescue me. And guess what? That night, T.O. 
Air Force pilot Thomas O. Hanford came up on the radio. In the sixth day at 2.08 in the morning, he was hungry, lonely, cold, afraid, and the object of a massive enemy ground search. It was then after a week of thwarted efforts, he made radio contact with a U.S. plane that relayed his message and location to the rescue team. When he shot off a yellow flare at 6.35 a.m. so that rescue helicopters could pinpoint his location, fog rolled into the valley, blinding the villagers to anything taking place above them. When the helicopters dropped out of the sky, Captain O'Grady ran for his life toward them. As he scrambled across the threshold into one of the waiting helicopters, his chest was heaving and he was sobbing. And he kept repeating, thank you, thank you, thank you. Captain Scott O'Grady was thrilled to be rescued from enemy territory. But his thrill is only a shadow of the thrill Christians all over the world will one day experience at the end of the great tribulation. After not just six days, but seven years of being hungry and cold and lonely and hunted by a hostile antichrist dominated society. And after years of praying for deliverance and living in enemy territory, the sky will unfold to reveal their rescue team led by the one who is faithful and true. Are you ready for that day? It could be today. We don't know. We don't know. It could be today. It could be before we enjoy sit down to a table and enjoy lunch with family and friends today. He could come back today. Are you ready? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Folks, if not, you can dream all you want to about being in that great company that is going to enjoy Christ's inheritance with Him. But the Bible says it's not going to happen that way. If you don't know Christ, He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Do you know Him? If not, there's an urgency to get right with Him before It's eternally too late. Don't find yourself eternally in the wrong place without any remedy whatsoever. Christians, you know, the Bible says we're to to get ready too. 1 John 2.28, the Bible says, Abide in Him so that when He appears, you will not be ashamed. John speaks in 1 John about purifying your... Everybody who has this hope in himself purifies himself. Just like a bride getting ready for the ceremony. We're to be getting ready. Is there anything in your life as a believer that grieves the heart of the Heavenly Father? Is there some sin you've not dealt with and confessed and repented of? Is there somebody that you're not right with? Is there anything going on in your life for which you need to deal with that? 
Because one day we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Would you stand please? Our hymn of invitation is going to be on the screens behind me. If you need Christ in your life, I would beg of you to come forward and say, Pastor, I need Jesus. I need to be born again. Would you pray with me? Would you help me understand what it means to to come to Christ? I want to be changed by the gospel. I want to be transformed. Pray with me. I'll be happy to pray with you. Maybe there is something in your life you want to come in a public way to this altar and deal with and say, God, help me to get this right. Because if you were to come back today, I want a clean slate. I want a clean slate. I want to be like a bride who has that spotless white wedding gown on. You deal with that. If you need a church home where you can worship and pray and serve with other believers as we await that day, you come forward. We'd love to have you as a part of the fellowship here. Let's sing together.